Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. Joining us as the setlist curator is legendary photographer Jay Blakesburg. In addition to his decades shooting the Grateful Dead, Jay has also photographed Fish, Radiohead, Nirvana, The Rolling Stones, Wilco, Carla Santana, and many, many more. Tonight's contestants will be vying for a signed copy of Jay's newest book, out now, Retro Blakesburg, which features photographs and essays inspired by the Instagram account of the same name. Jay collaborated on the book with his daughter, Ricky, who is also a photographer, in selecting photos from Jay's extensive archives. All of their selections were shot on film. Thanks so much for being here, Jay. Welcome. All right. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Awesome. Here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year their performance is from. Contestants, who are all on a video conference together, can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will have a best of three series to determine a winner. We've got our returning champion Jeremy here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment. But first, let's hear Jay's first song. Without further ado, The Grateful Dead. Guesses are in. The song was Black Throated Wind at Baltimore Civic Center on September 17th, 1972. Nice choice, Jay. Why'd you choose that one? Well, I love Black Throated Wind, and I'm sort of in this little Barlow phase at the moment. Um, uh, I connected with a guy recently named Andy Leonard, who uh, worked for the Grateful Dead, worked for Grateful Dead Records in 74-ish, uh, really good friends with Weir and Barlow was Barlow's college roommate. And, uh, and I just unearthed um, a treasure trove of photographs of Barlow um, that nobody's ever seen. And we're hoping to make a book out of them. 
Uh, and after I looked at all these photographs, which were mostly from the ranch up in Wyoming, after after they they graduated from college, him and Andy drove to Wyoming to pick up their stuff to move to uh, the Bay Area to, for Barlow to start writing songs with Weir, which essentially would eventually become the Ace record. Uh, Barlow's father died and somebody needed to run the ranch and save the ranch. So they stayed up there. And uh, it's this really intimate, intimate group of photographs of Andy Leonard and Barlow and a group of ranchers and women who uh, uh, came up to visit. And after I looked at all these photographs, I emailed Andy and I said, this is heterosexual Brokeback Mountain on acid. <laughs> and so I was in this Barlow mode and I love Black Throated Wind and I love that that lyric, you know, the highway, the moon, the clouds and the stars. To me, it's so evocative of like, you know, almost a hunter lick, um, hunter lyric, but it's it's a Barlow lyric, and it's just to me, it's just a great song, and it's always been one of my my fave weir songs and and uh, great road songs. So, you know, it's just something that I really dug and really loved, and that's why I chose Black Throated Wind. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, Jay. Okay, so two people got it exactly: Jeremy, uh, our returning champ, and Mark. Let's meet Mark real quick. Mark is forty six, and he's from uh, Nelson. British Columbia. That's right. Mark, you're our first Canadian on Guest of the Year. Thank you. Welcome. You nailed it. What'd you hear? How'd you figure that out? Well, <laughs> I, it sounded like 72 to me all the way through, but I knew it wasn't the Europe 72 sound. So I did question myself on it because um, it did not have that signature Europe 72 sound, but we're the pacing, uh, the tempo is very unique to that year. Uh, and Weir's voice sounds immaculate. And it, it's sort of like uh, his voice is the signature sound of that year. It's a giveaway to me. Um, I would not have called Baltimore, though. That's a great poll. And uh, I'm going to have to go and look at that show. And I'm also a Barlow super fan. So I'm excited about that project. Yeah, same here. Jay? To, to me, one of the real the giveaway on that song for the year is Lesh's tone. Cause to me, it's like that, you know, it's, it's that bass. It's either big Brown or, or mission control. I'm guessing it's probably big Brown at that point. Um, and so, you know, and, and like you said about Weir's voice, but there was something about the bass tone that to me says 72 more than 73 or four, which is sort of peak years for black throated wind. Thanks Jay. Jeremy is our returning champ. He also guessed 1972 and got it exactly. He's 24 and from Palo Alto. Jeremy, how'd you figure that one out? Um, so to me also, like what you said, uh, Mark, it sounded like 72, but not Europe 72. I feel like Europe 72 is a very distinct sound. For 72, it's funny how we listen to different things. Like for you, it was the bass tone, Jay, and and, and your Mark was talking about the... Uh, the Bob's vocals for me, it's all in the drums mostly for, for 72, just something how the drums sound on like Europe. It's even like far, it's kind of farther back in the mix and kind of quieter, I would say. And post Europe 72, the drums are a little bit louder, but still the, the Bill's playing style, the kind of fills that he plays the way the cymbals sound really say 72 to me. Awesome. Jeremy, you're on the next round. One step closer to defending the title, get the Jay Blakesburg signed book, Retro Blakesburg. Um, nice work. So Jev was guest 1973. Jev is 52 and he's from Columbia, South Carolina. One year off, Jev, very close. What'd you hear? 
I heard the same things that those other fellows were talking about. I mean, it sounded at the beginning, I, I really, I thought it was going to be Jack Straw. And then it suddenly was not Jack Straw. And it kind of threw me for a loop. And I'm like, holy shit, it's, it's um, Black-Throated Wind. And then I, then I, the same thing about not being Europe 72, it was clearly not that. And then I thought I heard some of that that lispy sound that some people in past shows have talked about with the the, the weird double mics, which made me want to push it another year forward. That was just, I mean, and I was kind of guessing. It, I, I wasn't 100% sure. I knew it had to be within that you know two-year frame. For sure. And it's good to you know hedge your bet by guessing 73. And it worked. You're on in the next round, Jeff. Especially when there's five people still here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh John guessed 74, which means Bill is odd man out, but we'll, we'll meet Bill in a second. Uh, John is 49. He's from Seattle. You're on the next round, John. Nice work. You guessed 74. Skin of my teeth. What'd you hear? Skin of my teeth. Well, uh, I, 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 if, if you gave me two seconds of that song, I probably would have called it a, a Jack Straw. Uh, so it did not have the signature 72 sound. It's not one of those ones which I probably just associate with that Europe sound, right? So I wasn't feeling 72. I think it may be the Zoom hearing the vocals um, typical of the wall of sound. So that's why I jumped um, you know, immediately to 74 and bypassed 73. Thanks, John. You're on to the next round. Bill, unfortunately, is eliminated. Bill is 52 and he's from Boston. Bill, you guessed 1976. Jay kind of tripped you up there. What'd you hear? Uh, well, I just thought it sounded way too much like 72. It couldn't be. I thought he was going to try to fool me, and I overthought my – I just talked myself out of it. <laughs> totally. Just totally talked I, – I heard everything you guys heard, too, and I said, no, it can't be. And uh, I chose 1976 incorrectly. Well, sorry to see you go, Bill, but tell us, how would you get into the dead? Oh, uh, my friend Brent, Brent Cooper. Uh, he uh, came over with, uh, with Working Man's Dead in uh, 1982. Uh, we finally got to see the dead in uh, with Dylan at uh, at Gillette, and what was that? Eighty six. It was a great show. So that was a great show with Dylan. You think? No, it wasn't. But okay. I mean, it was my first show. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, do you have a take on the Dylan years? Yeah, but before we go, Bill, as your parting gift, we have twenty five hits of LSD and two tickets to any show on the upcoming summer tour. All right, joining us. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of LSD. Don't take it all at once, Bill. You can redeem mm. it in the parking lot at any show this summer. <laughs> no grilled uh, cheese. Uh, I, I I like so I I'm a huge Dylan fan, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the Grateful Dead playing with Bob Dylan in 1987. I mean, I know that people complain about that record and they didn't love it, and you know, but it, I really am very fond of my photographs. I shot two of the stadium shows. Weren't there only five or six of them? Yeah. I shot Eugene, Oregon and Oakland, California. Um, and and uh, so to me, just being in the presence of Dylan and watching Dylan sing songs with Jerry Garcia on lead guitar was sort of enough for me. Um, you know, and as you guys all know, that was 36 years ago that that happened. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it was a moment in our collective Grateful Dead history that I was able to document and uh, experience twice. Um, and uh, there you have it. Bob Dylan, greatest living songwriter ever after Robert Hunter. <laughs> there you have it. Bill, thank you so much for coming on. It was great. I enjoyed being on it because I've listened to almost all the episodes. So thanks for having me. I really Holy appreciate shit. it. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it, man. 
okay, uh, Jeb, John, Jeremy, and Mark are competing for two spots in the best three series still. Um, Jay's got another song for him. Let's play it. Right, the guesses are in. It was Eyes of the World at Raceway Park in Englishtown on September 3rd, 1977. Jay, great choice. Why'd you pick that one? Well, it was my first Grateful Dead concert. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people uh, that grew up in New, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania area, that was their first Grateful Dead concert. Uh, 105,000 people, 150,000 people, 105 degrees. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a live radio broadcast on WNEW. That was the big rock station in New York city all through the sixties and seventies. And they did a, a live broadcast and the encore was Terrapin and they cut the broadcast before Terrapin. And so until that got released as a Dick's picks, um, nobody had it on the soundboard tape, but I had a cassette tape of that, that we recorded, you know, somebody recorded at home that night. People used to actually stay home to do soundboard recordings of radio broadcasts back in the day. Like I'll skip the show and record the show. And uh, if you haven't listened to that whole show in a while, I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend listen to the He's Gone, Not Fade Away jam. It's 40 minutes long. Um, it is classic 77 above and beyond. Incredible, beautiful hair raised up on the back of your neck and on your arms jam in between he's gone and not fade away really really beautiful so i just love the show i love the show i love that era of that song but it was interesting when i was listening to it um i was also thinking that could easily be a 74 version when i was just listening to it now and trying to remove myself from knowing it was 77 i was thinking yeah i could guess 74 on this one kind of had that vibe um but yeah there's two drummers and in 74 there was not two drummers so you know, if you're that attuned into it, you know, listening to Phil's bass also, again, that that 
77 sound. If you listen to all those 77 tapes, Phil's got that very distinct bass sound in that in that era. So there you have it. That's me. So it was 105 that day? 105 degrees. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you bring a water bottle or something? Uh, I had water in the bong that I brought with me. Perfect. <laughs> Last resort. It's always good to have, though. Um, there were no water bottles in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't bring okay. your uh, clean canteen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one person got 77. It is Jev. Jev, you nailed it. Yeah. What would you hear there? Well, I could tell you that right from the get-go, the, the, the one thing about Eyes of the World is the tempo of the song varied fairly dramatically over the years. And so the, the speed, the, the tone, and then I was, I was a boarding school guy um, where I got turned on to the dead. And that particular FM recording that Jay was just talking about was one of the really high quality bootlegs that floated around the school back then. And I've probably listened to that version of the song, you know, hundreds of times. Okay. That was like when I only had a couple bootlegs, that was one of them. And I, I, I wasn't ballsy enough to type in English Town when I sit when I put in my thing, but that's exactly what I thought it was. And he affirmed my my love of that awesome sound. Anyway, it just sounded like '77 to me, and it sounded like that particular tape. Nice, Jeff. Nice work. So Jeremy and Mark both got '78. Mark, uh, we'll go to you. Uh, one year off. You're on the next round. Uh, Why do you think '78? There's a bounce to Jerry's playing in the latter half of 1977 and all of 1978 that is very different from the spring of 77. It's like, it's like an attitude change. You could, I could hear it there. I thought this was Red Rocks 78. That was my guess. I was, I got granular with it. (laughs) I got bold, Um, but I was wrong. I know a lot of people that, um, that English town was their first show. It's surprising that th- there's so many people floating around that that was their first show and they all wear it as a badge of honor. Like they went through something together, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sounds like they did no water. 105. A little, little, couple of little known facts about English town. Donna had just had some sort of surgery. And so she sat on a stool for most of the show and Mickey um, had gotten in some sort of car accident and almost couldn't make it to English Town um, because he drove his car. From what I remember, tell, someone telling me he drove his car off a driveway that was like elevated that went down a steep hill, and his car ended up landing in a tree, like a you know off the driveway in a tree that was like down below, um, and had some sort of arm injury that that almost prevented him from making it to English Town and them canceling, but they didn't, and, and so. What you guys may or may not know is that the Grateful Dead did four big Labor Day weekend concerts on the East Coast in a row, English Town being the first one, September 3rd, 1977. The Giant Stadium at the Meadowlands was September 2nd, 1978. Uh, Rochester, New York was September 1st, 1979. And the fourth one was Lewiston, Maine on September 6th, 1980, which was technically the weekend after Labor Day, but we still considered it the big Labor Day weekend concert and then after that they never did another run like that again uh but all four of those shows were really really important formative shows for a lot of deadheads 
all the people that English Town wasn't their first show for. A lot of people, the Meadowlands was their first show, the 9278 one. 9179 uh, had an interesting couple of openers, a local New Jersey band called the Good Rats opened. And then a California artist named Greg Kinn, Bay Area guy, opened, was the next act. And they, you know, Greg Kinn was considered sort of new wave punk. The Good Rats were sort of like hard rock. And so it was a very weird crowd for for the Grateful Dead, but uh, also a, a very legendary show up in Rochester with this deep, deep wharf rat with Phil dropping me mega, mega bass bombs in there. And then uh, the Lewiston Main show on September 6, 1980. Uh, I asked David Lemieux a couple of years ago why that wasn't a Dick's Picks or a Dave's Picks. And he said they have no soundboard tape of it. Um, they only have audience recordings. He said if it, there was a soundboard tape, it would have been a Dick's Picks within the first 10 or 15 because it's that much of a legendary show. And uh, the band and Roy Buchanan were the opening acts at that show. Every year when I post photos from that show uh, on the anniversary of the 9680 show, every single person that comments talks about how legendary that show was and how great it was. Um, great Althea in there, a bunch of really cool stuff. So if you if you search stuff like that out, look for the 9680 show. Great tip. And nice nice call, Mark. Jeremy, you also guessed 78. You're also on the next round. Anything you want to add to the breakdown there? To me, uh, I th yeah, later, 77 and 78 sound very similar as well. Uh, whereas like Spring, I guess, 77 sounds a little different. I feel like I need to go back and listen to some Spring 77 because it's been a while. But to me, it's like I mentioned this in the previous episode. It was the piano sound. Keith's tone sounds a little bit more like metallic or something maybe almost like digital even though it's it's not you know it's just something it sounds less like acoustic piano to me there's something there's kind of a sheen over it um and i know from the previous episode that that is also present in in 77 uh but i just decided to guess 78 again because i went i went with my gut there but i might have to do a little more research on those the the minutiae of the those those two years to try to pinpoint that um okay you're on the next round jeremy so that means john's odd man out sorry john you got 74 you're eliminated uh yeah. what tripped you up there actually i guess jay just said it could have been 74 so maybe you guys were hearing the same thing yeah jay i mean jay gave me some redemption there man i did not see myself going down on something so fundamental as uh one versus two drummers i thought i heard something there for a moment uh but then thought it was just philly doing something a little funky and then really towards the end of the clip, man, I was really just hearing one drummer. Um, it, it sounded, I was already, so I was already sort of based there. I was trying to kind of confirm with what going, what was going on with Keith. And it wasn't just sort of the, sort of the chord drops um, that we get, you know, going into 1978. It was still sort of like twinkly that we hear in, you know, 77, obviously, but, but uh, that I more associate, you know, pre hiatus and not the, uh, you know, the tone that's on the 76 keyboard. So yeah, surprised that I went down that way, but Jay, thank you for giving me a little bit of, you know, redemption there with your comment that, you know, you thought it sounded a little bit 74 ish yourself. Well, thanks John. And as a parting gift for you, we have uh, 50 hits of LSD and uh, four tickets that you can purchase through Ticketmaster for any goose show this summer. Um, oh. we'll see you up there in the parking lot. Wow. Thanks, John, thanks Jay. You yes. can, you can hook up bill with the rest of your acid. If he runs out of his 25 hits, it's perfect. Well, we'll um, see. I don't know. You know, it's, it's only 50. <laughs> uh, but John, how did you get into the dead? I, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Northern New Jersey where it was, uh, you know, I think it was a bit of a rite of passage, you know, and I was, uh, 
you know, before I got into them had, you know, there's older brothers and sisters and who are these, you know, weird ass friends and what were they doing? And, um, you know, it's got, got a little bit older. I think, um, I don't know, it was first, I think I maybe got a cassette of American beauty and working man's dead, you know, front and back on the same cassette and, you know, gave that a few spins and then, um, you know, really just was just a, a, a true touch head. Um, when, uh, in the dark came out, um, got that CD for Christmas and listened to it a ton, ended up, uh, going to my first shows in October of 1989 at the Brendan Byrne Arena. So caught the opener of that run, which was a Wednesday night. Um was 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 kind of blown away um by by the by the whole experience. Knew very little about really what to expect in terms of the whole circus surrounding it and really being, you know, kind of uh, probably at its peak in that time. Um went back Saturday night. Um had a wonderful time there. Um yeah, that's because answering more than you asked. You asked me how I got into them. I started giving you my life history there, but um, you know, just kept kind of going from there, um, sort of chasing it all the way. Well, almost near to the end. Um, saw my last show in '95 at the uh, uh, in, at the Meadows in Portland, Oregon. Were you aware that things were kind of like dipping? Yeah, that's why I didn't travel back to the East Coast. Like I had seen Giants '94, Highgate '94, and. Uh, yeah, we had done we had done Seattle, which was okay, and then um, you know going down to Portland and just you know you know I, let, let let's not too speak, you don't want to go too negative on it, but just seeing Jerry looking so stiff and so just kind of out of his element, and actually seeing Chuck Berry outperform him, I was like, you know, I think uh, I think Johnny Boy's hanging the hat up here, and wasn't worth uh, you know traveling back to the East Coast and everything, and turns out you know that was that was it. Anyway. It's good times. I was glad to be a part of this. Again, I didn't see myself going out with kind of an obvious cue, such as the drummers. So brought tremendous shame to my family. But uh we'll get we'll get past it. Yeah, at least you have Thanks those hits of me. acid, you know. Thanks for doing it. Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jay. You're welcome. All right, let's play it. Right. 
where the darkness never goes. In some men's eyes, oh no, no. Stroll the sidewalks, then he rolls the streets. Sticky tear, dividing a beat. The guesses are in. Throwing Stones at Giant Stadium on July 12th, 1987. Jay, why'd you pick that one? Well, I wanted to throw a, a Throwing Stones. You know, 87 was a big year for, for Deadheads, right? Jerry came back from the coma. Um, and 87 was a strong year when Jerry came back. The band was really on fire. Um, a lot of great shows. I did not go to that particular show, but I saw a lot of shows in 87 on the West Coast. And, and, and Throwing Stones had really... Uh, when did when did such a great come out before or after that? I don't remember the exact date, but it it did come out. I'm sorry, in the dark, the record. Um, it did come out in 87. But, you know, I first heard Throwing Stones in 82 at Frost um, in October of 82. And the song evolved over time. But it was, you know, it, it was such a prevalent song for me and my friends in 87. Uh, I don't know if you know this story, but on November 5th, 1987, they filmed the video for Throwing Stones in an abandoned high school in Oakland, California. And I snuck onto the video set and, uh, and spent 10 hours there photographing them, making the, the MTV video for that. And I lived across the street from the high school, the abandoned high school where they did it and literally hung out there all day. I think after about seven hours, somebody said, who are you? I'm like, Jay Blakesburg, Relics Magazine. And they said, okay, like you can't, you know, you speak on a video set today, like you'll, you'll be in jail, right? And so- um, that's the, my famous photo of Jerry wearing that weird top hat and those Australian oil coats. Um, but anyway, I just, you know, I, I, I just think it's an important song, uh, again, an important Barlow song, important Weir song. I think Weir was super powerful in 87 and, uh, Garcia was, was, it was another one of his peaks really, um, that only lasted a couple more years before, as John was saying that, you know, it started to go downhill by the time you got to 90, 91, obviously the scene was was crushing it on its own it was imploding from the outside in and from the inside out and uh but but those last couple of years after that coma 87 88 89 were some pretty solid years um and i just felt like throwing stones was at a peak moment at that time yeah 87 through 89 get a lot of love on the show and for good reason I see what you mean thank you jay jeremy was closest he's on to the finals he guessed 1988 one year off of 1987 great work jeremy how'd you suss that out so for me, like 86, 87 to 90 is pr is very hard for me to distinguish. They all sound pretty similar. I mentioned that last time. Uh, but the way the drums sound, uh, the snare is not quite as punchy as maybe in the early to mid 80s. It sounds a little like looser, maybe. Uh, and it's Brent's keys. Brent has that, that specific key tone in the late 80s that's kind of like uh you know like a midi piano mixed with like a little bit of like a synth string thing which like i initially you know i kind of prefer like the acoustic sounding pianos and stuff maybe from the 70s so it took a while for that to grow on me but i i, I appreciate that tone now but i can identify that as as being late 80s uh i decided 88 just because it's kind of smack dab in the middle of that range 86 to, to 90 uh i thought it was a safe safe guess so i went with that nice work jeremy you're on to the finals try to defend your title get that copy of retro blakesburg so um next closest 
also on the final is, is Jev, who guessed 89. And Mark is eliminated because he guessed 93. Jev, what'd you hear there? Very similar to what Jeremy was just saying. First of all, th- this was the time. It sounded, when I first started seeing shows in 88, eight, and then 89, 90, saw a whole bunch of shows. And it sounds like my dead. What I consider, you know, when I hear the Grateful Dead, that to me is the dead because that's what I saw. Okay. I didn't, I'm not as old as Jay. So I didn't get to see him in those fine English town days. Um, I really wasn't positive. I couldn't guess for sure, but there's something about the, there was a little echoey sound and the recording itself that reminded me of some other recordings that I have. And that's why I went with the 89. I, it, nothing fancy. I, I can't tell you about the guitar tone or anything like that. Other than it just sounds like shows I've listened to from that era. Fair enough. It gets the job done. Nice work, Jeb. You're on to the finals. Mark, you guessed 93. What'd you hear there? You know, it was the lack of vocal harmony from Brent where it should have been in that mm. per- specific performance that threw me off. If he missed his cue and if he had been singing in that moment, it would have been obviously not 93. Um, so I thought it was post-Brent era and I just took a stab in the dark at 93 because that was the first year that I saw the dead. Brent costing you there. <laughs> Jay? No, I just thought it was interesting that that was your cue of how you missed the, you know, like you were thinking, oh, Brent didn't come in, so it's got to be Vince era. Um, yep. Interesting. Vince, you know, Vince's keyboard is also very distinctive by 93, um, a little bit more like high-pitched and like dingy, tingy. I don't know how to describe it, but, uh, um, but yeah, you know, I could see, I could see why you would pick 93 on that. I think that you listening to that version of that song, you could probably think it'd be 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. I think that any of it is 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 valid. Uh, Mark, how'd you get into the dead? You know, I avoided the dead for a long time because of their iconography. When I was a little kid, I, it was everywhere around me. There were deadhead stickers on cars, and uh, yeah, I saw people wearing t-shirts and stuff, and I, I just kind of shrieked back from the, the skulls and the skeleton iconography. As a little kid, it's a little bit frightening to me. Um, I thought they were a heavy metal band, honestly. And, um, and I wasn't into heavy metal. And so I just sort of like turned my, turned my head elsewhere. And then, uh, I was at a friend's house and we were, um, sufficiently altered and he put on without a net, without a net is the first Grateful Dead that I ever heard. And, and it's still that era the spring 1992 tour is my absolute favorite Grateful Dead. It really, truly is. I mean, and I listen to all of it. Um, but that, the repertoire and the coherence of the band members and the clarity. I just love those late era songs, too. I really do. I appreciate them so very much. And I love uh, Barlow and Brent working together in the songwriting. Man, I, you know. That era of Grateful Dead really speaks to me. So you're into like the Built to Last album? Love it. I love it. But I honestly, I never listened to studio records. I don't listen to, I, I barely ever listen to Grateful Dead studio records. And um, it's not because I don't think they're great. It's just that there's such a trove of live stuff. And that's really where my heart is at. And I, I host a radio show up here in the mountains in Canada. That's all live music. And so I'm always doing research for my show and listening to different 
different bands uh, in different eras. And I always play about an hour of Grateful Dead every week. And so I'm listening to, you know, I'm not listening to studio records when I'm researching that show. And th that takes up a lot of my music listening time. About an hour of it is Grateful Dead related, at least uh, Grateful Dead songs uh, performed by some musician. I've just played this, uh, this artist named Holly Bowling. Have you heard of her? Sure, she's a good friend of mine. Oh, man. Yeah. Incredible. She does a version of Althea that you absolutely have to. And also Days Between, you have to check those two out. Solo piano. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. She's amazing. She's amazing. Well, Mark, for your parting gift, we have 75 hits of Blotter Acid. And we have 40 hours of downloadable live music for your radio show that you can download from any internet website that you are able to find on your own because we can't provide that. And uh, we wish you the best. And thank you for being part of our show today. Um, don't eat all 75 hits at once. Please spread it out over the entire summer. And um, uh, we're going to move on now with our finalists, Jeremy and Jev, here on the program. Couldn't have said any better myself. Let's play the song. Tough one. Yeah, Jay, that was um, a nice one. It was Morning Dew at Ice Palace in Las Vegas, great name, on March 29th, 1969. Uh, why'd you choose that one, Jay? Well, I chose Morning Dew because it's just one of my faves. Um, when when the Grateful Dead were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead, they did fairly well, and Phil Lesh at Terrapin Crossroads, he did a series of shows where they played a show from every year in the band's history. And before every one of those shows, I got to interview Phil about what was going on in the band's life and history at that in that year. I did all the years except for 69 and 70, actually, because I was out of town. Um, they had somebody else who worked at Terrapin do those. And, and, uh, and before I would start asking Phil questions, I did like a little report. You know, what were those songs they played the most that year? What was in the pop charts? Maybe what was on television or the, the movies or the Oscar winners? 
And every every year I would do the morning dew report, how many morning dews they played that year. And it was kind of this inside joke. Um, now, you know, of course, morning dew is a, a dark and gloomy song about nuclear holocaust. But for us, when we heard morning dew, when they, you know, end of the show, you got a wharf rat, a Stella Blue, a morning dew, a Black Peter, a comes a time, maybe if you're lucky, a China doll, if you were lucky. Uh, but essentially it was, you know, Warfrat, Stella Blue, Black Peter, Morning Dew, right? In 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 peak years. And of course, we always wanted the dew. And I think it was it was less about the lyrics, although they're pretty lyrics for a depressing song, the way they're delivered, but it's the two guitar solos in the song, right? So Garcia does the one long solo, they come back, they sing, and then there's the end solo, which builds and builds and builds. And when you're on copious amounts of LSD and you're listening to that moment and you're in that moment, there's really no better place to be than in that second guitar solo of Morning Dew. And so it's always just hold a, held a very special place in my heart and my psyche um, as far as being a really, really important song for the experience that we had when we got to hear it live with Jerry Garcia singing it. Um in real time and so it's just one of those songs that i just truly truly love and uh can never get enough of no matter who's playing it these days and especially when back in the day when when the band played it we loved the morning dew uh and so i wanted to pick an early morning dew just because i wanted to pick an early morning dew because some of them are just so incredibly epic uh that one actually seemed like it was like struggling to get started you know i only I, I think when I found it to choose it, I just clicked on the middle of the song. And I'm like, oh yeah, this sounds great. You know, I was rushed and, you know, choosing songs and and I probably could have done better uh, choosing something from somewhere else in that same era. Um, but that was the one that I chose and it sounded good in that one little 30 second blip that I listened to. Thanks, Jay. Jev, guest 69, he got it exactly. Jeremy, guest 68. Jev goes up one zero in the series. Nice work, Jev. How'd you suss that out? Well, I will echo Jay's sentiment that the very beginning, the sound was pretty friggin' rough. It reminded me of some of the old bootlegs that we used to trade, you know, before the archive and all the really good stuff became available to everyone. And I wrote down 68. And then as the song progressed and got way better, and I could hear Garcia's voice, and then I heard what I think. I, I'm not a keyboard aficionado, but I think it was TC in there. Um, and that made me want to go 69 because I'm pretty confident that he was only in the band a very short period of time. And it was around that time. In fact, a few weeks ago, Mike, you had a uh, the Woodstock show where it was from 69. And that threw me off bad. I was so off on, on trying to pick that 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 particular one. I would have been out on round one that game. But somebody mentioned the TC playing in that. And when I listened, I rewinded it and listened it again and, and that was the the signal that gave me 69 today so wow. whoever made that comment would gave me money um advice for now love that i can't remember who that was but uh yeah i remember the story that was like a pristine woodstock recording it was a little like confusing right um Jeff, really nice slow mama tried i think and, and also this <laughs> like i think in 67 pig pen sounded a lot different than he did in 68 and even like you said with the tc thing i didn't really think about the tc thing but i think you're right there that there was that little overlayering of both pig pen and tc in there for a second so that was a that was a, an, an interesting call good job way to go Thank you. way to go jeff um jeff how'd you get into the dead 
I, like several other people who have been on the show before, the early 80s was a total metalhead, okay? I was, I loved screaming lead guitar, okay? If you could shred, that's what I wanted to hear. And metal delivered that to me back then. And when I went to boarding school, I was from Charlotte, North Carolina back then. And I was went to boarding school up near Bill in uh, Boston. And I, everybody was listening to the dead. And I would never even, I, I would just like what I think it was John or maybe Mark to talk about the iconic graffiti. I thought they must have been the heaviest of the heavy metal bands to have all those skeletons and stuff. Like not even, I didn't even want to go there. Um, but when I did, I, I remember I was in my dorm room and I heard somebody playing St. Stephen, I think from the live dead and the guitar, like, I was like, holy shit, what is that? You know, and I've been from there, it just took off. The bootlegs were flying up there. They were pretty bad, but that's the only way we listened. Nobody listened to records. We listened to these sucky little tapes. Ultimately, I've always been kind of a, a collector of things and I, I amassed like 2000 plus um dead tapes and i had them in racks on the wall and um, i still have them stashed somewhere my wife made me put them away they could I, they were no longer displayed um but i just i couldn't get to shows until because i was in boarding school we couldn't nobody had a car you know you're basically stuck there they would play like the worcester centrum and places like that you couldn't go when i finally got to college freshman year i went going back on the labor day thing i went to the cap center in uh dc on uh september 5 1988 was my first show um in fact i had screwed up mail order i didn't know how to do it right and then i figured that out and then i then it was on and i would see as many shows as i could in the south i, I wouldn't i've never been a guy who's going to travel all over the country but i went to chapel hill for college so we could see like the um hampton atlanta the Cap Center, um, RFK, Charlotte. And then by the time I graduated, it, that's when Jerry was declining, as we've talked about. And I only saw one or two shows. I was working all the time. I suddenly was, you know, that, I was a nine to fiver guy, you know, and it wasn't, I didn't have the freedom to do that. And, and even when I did, though, I was not, I, I didn't think I was missing anything. You know what I mean? It was the decline. What's really sad is, is that I think I am close to the age when Jerry died. And I look a hell of a lot better than he did, okay? Yeah, what was he, like 51 or something? Or 53, maybe? I'll be 53 like two months. I'm 61, and he looked 100 years older than me. Yeah, I mean, you look like, you look so much better than he did. Love it, Jeb. Thank you. Well, Jeremy, you're only one year off. Jeb made you pay, but you guessed 68. Uh, do, you, do you hear, having heard the breakdown from Jay and Jeb, uh, where you kind of got tripped up? I, yeah. Also, like you guys were saying, how rough it sounded at first. Like it, I you know I probably should have gone sixty nine. I think just there's like there's a lot because there's a lot more recordings from them for, from that year that exist. I think. Um, but yeah, because of how rough it sounded, it sounded a little out of tune. Like the guitars, maybe. Um, also, Jerry's voice sounded kind of a little younger than sixty nine to me. Like it sounded like he was trying to still figure it out. Like I, I, I feel like Jerry hit his vocal peak in like the mid seventies, personally. Actually, well, I, I could, you could argue that even in the late eighties, even though he's it was old man Jerry's voice, you know. But it, I, you could argue that his, he was more refined, and was was, an overall better singer, even though the the actual quality of his voice had declined. But, and anyways, so I, I it sounded a little bit 
too primitive to be 69 to me. I like that take, Jeremy. 87 is when Jerry's vocals peaked. A lot like Smigo saying Phil's vocals peaked in 2010. Another epic, <laughs> epic take. Um, Jeb is up 1-0 in the series. Jeremy needs this one to tie it up or else Jeb gets the signed retro Blakesburg coffee table photograph book with essays. Yeah, Jay's going to be kind enough to sign for the winner. Um, yeah, let's play this song. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> so Sugary at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey on August 4th, 1976. Nice pick, Jay. Why did you pick that one? I wanted to just pick something from 76. That I wish there was a soundboard of that. I thought there was. Um, you know, that Roosevelt Stadium show was a pretty legendary show uh, right after Jerry's birthday. But, you know, it was the year after the hiatus, right? And uh, uh, I just wanted to pick something from that year because it was... 76 was a, a strong year. They did all those small theater shows up in Boston and the Capitol Theater in Passaic. This was a stadium show. This was a big one. Um, I just wanted to get something right before that that mega shift 77 happened and something post 75. I almost chose something from 75. As you know, there were only four concerts in 1975 that the Grateful Dead played. Um, I, I think if I chose a 75 one, it might have been hard if I ch- if I found like the snack benefit or something. But Really just wanted to pick something in that in that era because it was like this real transitional era, very different sounding than 74, not a lot of music in 75, obviously. 76 was sort of this precursor to this new, um, you know, Jerry was getting used to that Travis Bean guitar, um, started playing it in 75, playing with the Garcia band, has that metal neck, it's a little bit different sound. And uh, 77, of course, completely changes the face of what the Grateful Dead could do. So really, I just wanted to pick something from that year, to be perfectly honest. Thank you so much, Jay. Um, 
we still got a game here because Jeremy nailed it, 1976. Nice work, Jeremy. Uh, Jev guessed 73. Jeremy ties up the series. You nailed 76, Jeremy. How'd you suss that? I'm very glad that a 76 was was chosen because it's one of my favorite years. Uh, just a, it's a really nice, like like Jay was saying, it's that transition back into two drummers. It's a completely different sound from 74, and I, I feel like it's pretty distinct from 77 and 78 as well. Just a lot, very, a lot of slow tempos, pretty laid back sound. You've got that definitely more acoustic sounding piano from Keith. Um, I really like that Jerry's tone with the Travis Bean guitar. Um, another thing that cues me to 76 is how the drums sound too. Um, like the hi-hats are kind of uh, higher pitched a little bit, I would say. Um, you could not really hear it on this recording or on this song specifically, but I, like also in 76, I feel like Mickey and, and, and Bill were kind of doing some experimenting with their rhythms and stuff. And I really like that too. If you listen to like dancing on the, in the streets or, uh, you know, I even heard some like, like the first slow friend of the devils, which I heard, I heard one that was like a straight up reggae song. Always keen to the drums, Jeremy. Uh, nice work. Jev, you guessed 73. What'd you hear there? First of all, it was a serious audience recording. Very, very serious, which is not something that I've spent a lot of time listening to with those years. To me, I didn't hear two drummers. I only heard one. Yeah, I was really thrown by that one. Is this the real deal? Okay, the, the quality of the recording, mainly the, the low mics, real low mics. I mean, those people were you know, um, you could hear them real well. And I've spent a lot, you know, as a hardcore bootleg guy, I spend a lot of time avoiding low mic shows if I can help it, unless it's some band that, you know, really somebody's truly stealthed it. Damn, Jeb, nice pull. Hi to the mic. We haven't had that on the show yet. Nice work. Well, the series is tied 1-1. But before we go to the tie-breaking round here, the pivotal game three, um, Jay, everyone's told us how they got into the dead. How did you get into the dead? So like everybody else, you get turned on by an older brother, sister, older friend. Uh, my sister brought me to English town when I was 15. Uh, I knew a couple songs, but there was this guy named Lozzie, Craig Lockwood. He was two years older than me. And his mission in life was to turn people onto music that they needed to learn about. And so he took me to my first Jerry Garcia band show, which was in the summer of 77 down in Asbury Park, New Jersey, July. That was just a couple months before the English town show. And, uh, you know, really, we're all born with this little tiny strand of psychedelic DNA, even though, you know, even though Jev had this heavy metal streak, that was all fake. He really was born with that psychedelic strand of DNA. I will say, though, for you guys, I think it was uh, Mark also was saying he was scared of the iconography of the Grateful Dead. I'm in the middle of making a book on Grateful Dead tattoos right now. So I'm looking at a lot of Berthas and a lot of skulls and roses and 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 dancing bears and turtles and lightning bolts and and stuff like that it's kind of funny but uh um you know you get turned on to this music and and really once you realize you found your people right that's a big part of it so you've connected with this music you've connected perhaps with a, a on a psychedelic level and perhaps you've connected with people that all of a sudden you're like wait you're like me and then you find yourself dancing by yourself in the living room of your parents' house when you're 19 years old or 17 years old to a live bootleg that somebody gave you that you met in a parking lot of a dead show. And you're, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's right out of freaks and geeks that last episode. 
and 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 you've realized that you're home you know and then when you realize that you saw a show and you've got to go to another one because what if they play that morning do what if they play that scarlet begonias and you can't miss it you know and then it just keeps going from there because you you know again it becomes this addictive thing and then it becomes this adventure and then you're on the road and then you're traveling with your friends and then you're driving four five six eight ten twenty hours to go see a show and then it becomes this all-encompassing thing and you realize that it's this important thing that you're doing because there's nothing else that makes you feel like it not being at your home with your parents not being with your friends from high school maybe who are still listening to heavy metal or you know they're they're taking a hit of acid because they can drink a case of beer or not get drunk and you're taking a a, a hit of acid and you're seeing God or having some other experience, right? And so there are all these things that are that are combined and converging and 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 coming together, and you realize that's where you're supposed to be. And that's what happened to me, you know. And it was the music, and it was the people, and it was the experience, and it was the psychedelics, and it was um, Jerry singing and the words of Hunter and Barlow and 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 the Phil bass bombs and. And the 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 t-shirts and the nuances and the different eras and the bootleg tapes and all of those things. And then for me, it became the photography and documenting it and being part of that experience. And uh, and then once you get that deep into it, you realize that you cannot quit the mob because they won't let you. And then you're in for life. And here we are. And it's, you know, all of us, you know, whether, you know, you can only start seeing it when you're born, when your parents, you know, had sex, right? I'm 61 years old. It's the only reason I was at English Town. If you guys were my age, you would have maybe been at English Town or Giant Stadium or something like that, right? So you started in whatever, 84 or 86 or 91 or, or you know, uh, uh, Jeremy, I don't know how old you are. Maybe you never even got to see Jerry. So you've never seen Jerry, right? right? So all of us come to it in different ways and you can only come to it for when you're born, right? And, uh, but once you were there, you realize you were there and you needed to be there, right? It doesn't matter if you be, it doesn't matter if you dropped acid with Ken Kesey in 1964, you know, in a hospital at Stanford with the CIA doing experiments, or if you dropped acid, you know, for a long time, everybody was afraid to talk about taking acid, right? Um, you know, Kesey could talk about it. Leary could talk about it. Owsley could talk about it because it was the sixties and everybody did LSD. Well, you know, I realized at a certain point that it was okay to talk about it because now look at it. Mushrooms are legal. People are microdosing and they're writing about it in the New York times. Right. So all of these things that we were considered outlaw are now no longer outlaw and they're viewed upon it in a very different way. Right. And all of us, you know, I mean, we're all, you know, older except for Jeremy and, and, and in 40 years when Jeremy's 64, he's still going to be listening to this music, you know, and and he started after Jerry. We all got to see Jerry, right? Well, Mike, you didn't either, I'm guessing. No, but do you, no. do, you, do you understand what I mean? Do you guys agree with me that like this is this thing that we tapped into and there was there was no way to get away from it, right? And it's and it became part of our lives. But you know, we went on to get law degrees or start radio shows or have tech careers, or in my case, be lucky enough to be the band's photographer. You know, when I was 15 years old in English down with a bong on my chest. You know, I never thought, oh, it, you know, in 2015, they're going to do this thing called Fare Thee Well, and I'm going to be the photographer. Like, who? Like, you know, like, what the fuck? Do you know what I mean? Like, really? Like, what the fuck? And so here we are, 
and 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 we all are still connected to that music and that experience and because we still have these experiences and because they still mean a lot to us we want to continue to have those experiences whether it's with our spouses or our, our friends or our, our our high school buddies or our college friends or the people that's your next door neighbor that you realize also has a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac and it didn't scare you and you started that conversation with them hey do you want to go to that show this summer right so it's this thing it's this all-encompassing lifelong adventure that we are part of and we can't quit the mob there you go uh well said uh jay i'm wondering you've you've explored a little bit about how lsd influenced your exploration of the grateful dead and i'm wondering how it influenced your exploration of yourself well you know full disclosure uh when i was uh 19 years old i got arrested picking up 2000 hits of lsd at the local overnight package facility and got sentenced to five years in state prison and did um, eight months for um, possession of LSD with intent to distribute. But I still will say that LSD is probably one of the most pivotal, important things and profound things that happened to me in my life. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of people that I know and people that are friends now that got arrested with less LSD than I did and spent 15 or 20 years in jail and their whole lives were taken away from them. And if that had happened to me, I wouldn't be a guest on your show right now. I wouldn't have created the body of work that I created. I wouldn't have a book called Retro Blakesburg or a book called Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dreams. I got very, very lucky. But still, that experience for me was, you know, like I said, I had friends in high school that, that you know, did a hit of acid because they could drink a case of beer and never get drunk. And I'm like, wait, wait, you know, how do I get out of New Jersey? There's this whole world in front of me. How do I have these experiences? I'm reading the electric Kool-Aid to acid test. I want to have that experience. How do I get to San Francisco? How do I get to, you know, meet these poster artists? I want to go to a Bill Graham show at Winterland, right? So LSD and the literature and the posters and all of these things that we were experiencing when we were 15 years old. And for me, when I was 15 and 16 and 17 years old and going deep into that stuff, we were only 10, 12 years out of the summer of love at that point, right? I mean, it wasn't like it was, you know, now 50 years ago and and documentary films. I mean, it was still contemporary pop culture underground history and that's what we and like i said we were born with that strand of psychedelic dna because if you weren't you're not here right now right you know there's something about you know you could have easily jeremy at 24 years old uh uh you know could easily easily be listening to mastodon or you know what i mean or whatever right but but there's something that was that he was born with that that sent him in that direction just something a little bit and then he connected with people so lsd blew our minds. That's what it did. It blew our minds, right? And it blew our minds wide open and made us aware of the fact that there was a whole world out there and that we did not need to do, right? And you guys that are more my age will understand this. You guys that are younger probably have never heard something like this or not as aware is that our parents told us that you needed to do birth, work, school, and death. And there's nothing in between, okay? That was what came out of the 1950s, right? In the early 1960s. In the 1960s is straight America until Kesey and Hunter and Ginsburg and David Nelson started doing LSD experiments with the fucking CIA because they wanted to control our minds and use it as a, a weapon in, in, in warfare, right? And so straight America shifted. The beats became the hippies because of LSD, right? And everything changed in, in, our, in our trajectory as a consciousness, as a planet, as a people. And obviously psychedelics go back, you know, centuries with you know, other organic, you know, mescaline and peyote and, 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 and 
you know, mushrooms and things like that. Um, you know, the psychedelic experience has been around forever, but when it, when the genie got let out of the bottle, you know, with Kesey and Owsley and, and everything else, everything changed for everybody and it made it okay. And you, and you realize that you didn't have to do that birth school work death. You could do birth school, dead tour, goose tour, you know, playing in the sand, travel around the world, take a year off, have an adventure, live with a girl or a guy that you weren't married with, have sex before you were married. All of these things were were essentially things that came out of the 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 underground counterculture. And a lot of that started when the beats became the hippies with the use of LSD. So there's a six month gap in your book then. Uh yeah, in my life. <laughs> yeah. They didn't give me a camera in prison. I I I asked. They weren't gonna go down that road. And that's a whole other story. And actually, so I have a new book out called Retro Blakesburg, and it's my visual autobiography, right? And uh, and it and it's only photographs that I shot on film, and it starts in 1978 and ends in 2008 when I stopped shooting film and switched to digital full time. And at the beginning of each decade, it's separated out by decades. So the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, I wrote about a 2,500 word essay about where I was in my life with photography, with music, with everything that was going on. And so, because people, you know, people have heard me speak on podcasts or come to my Grateful Dead slideshows when I do them. And they're like, when are you going to write your book? And where's your autobiography? And where's the documentary? And, you know, and I'm like, "Ah, ah, ah, leave me alone, leave me alone, you know? And then I was like, okay, I started working on this book during the pandemic with my daughter, Ricky. It was her idea, Retro Blakesburg, which is an Instagram page, only photographs that I shot on film that she manages and doesn't let me touch. And, And then she's like, let's do a book. And then as I started putting it together, I realized this was my opportunity to do my biography, but I didn't want to write a 300 page book. And when I was in high school and when I grew my hair long, you know, it's more concise. It's more, you know, stories about that moment and what was going on. And so that's what the book Retro Blakesburg is. You can buy it at bookstores. You can go to my website and get a signed copy, blakesburg.com or rockoutbooks.com or both my websites and and check it out. And I, I self-publish all my own books. Um, I believe in the art that I'm putting out there and the quality of it and and that it's connecting with people. And so I step up to the plate and I put my money where my mouth is and I, I publish my own books. And uh, so come and support the arts and, and check out what I've got to offer. Um, if you've never seen any of my books, um, I think they're of the highest quality. And, um, and I think that they have a lot to offer both visually. Um, you know, my last book before that was a book called Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dreams. John Mayer wrote forward for it. Um, it's a really, really incredible book, in my opinion, uh, because it shows Garcia at a time and place in his life from when I shot him from 1978 until 1995. Um, so that's, you know, that's my story. And that's kind of, you know, kind of where I'm at um, in terms of, and and, uh, and I'm still a deadhead and I can't quit the mob because they're not going to let me. <laughs> uh, the link to Retro Blakesburg will be in the show notes. And yeah, Jeb and Jeremy are tied 1-1. Jay's got a song for them. Let's hear it.
Okay. That was a weather report suite at Curtis Hickson Convention Hall in Tampa, Florida on December 19th, 1973. Jay, nice choice. Always love a good weather report suite. Why'd you pick that one in particular? Well, it's weather report suite. You know, it's just, again, one of those epic things. You know, I just actually recently learned that the first part of weather report suite was not written by Barlow. It was written by some guy named Eric Anderson, which I never knew. Um, and Barlow wrote the, the, the second part of it. Um, it's just, it's just one of those epic, epic, you know, 15 minute songs. Um, I love 73, you know, it's, it's a really cool year. Um, it's, it's wildly different than 74. Um, and I'm sure the wall of sound was part of that for 74, but 73, they were starting to build the wall of sound, like the sound system. They had all those hard trucker speakers and whatnot. It just was it's just a cool year and it's just such a cool song. Still love it to this day. And so, you know, I wanted to just find something that was uh, also from the year that it sort of was, you know, it came, it came out, right. You know, didn't come out in 73 on wake of the flood. Yeah. So I just, I just wanted to, I wanted it in its, in its pure unadulterated form. Lovely. Well, Jeremy nailed it. 1973, Jeff guessed 74, one year off and Jeremy made him pay. Uh, Jeremy, you back to back champ. How'd you figure that out? Just on the solo there. Um, it was the first things that stuck out to me were, uh, the Phil's bass tone, just the way it's mixed. I don't know, like, it's kind of a little fuzzy almost at times when it hits certain notes. Um, also something I hadn't thought about in a while, I guess I haven't listened to 73 in a while, but, um, Bob's guitar tone. I really like his tone from that, from that era. Um. Sound, you know, it's I just I can recognize that, but it, it didn't sound like 74 to me because I feel like the 74 shows I'm familiar with, like uh, the Winterland, you know, um, the from the Grateful Dead movie, that those kind of things, like it was probably the wall of sound, but the drums sound like more like there's more reverberation, like on the toms and stuff, especially whereas this sounded kind of still like pre like it, it predates that that sound, yeah, that's pretty much how I got it. Super impressive, Jeremy. Congratulations again. Jev, you're one year off in 74. You had a great run. Only one year off on the tie-breaking round. What'd you hear there? What's most disappointing is, is I've put in 73 twice already tonight, been wrong. <laughs> and I was thinking I should put it in again. And I was like, that damn 73 is killing me. Um, I'm in it. Anyway, I, I associate... The, the song let it grow for whatever reason with 74 like that it, it, it didn't a we did i don't think we heard any vocals on that one did we no yeah it was all jam um and hell i think what was it december i was off by like a month uh yeah it was yeah. december 19th yeah, yeah. so i mean it, it, anyway it just I, what can you say man you came close <laughs> I, I, All that I, fancy I, talk I, about drums and stuff. I just didn't hear that. You know, I've never heard. It. I knew it was one of the two and I, I went, I should have gone 73 a third time. Well, one week off. And I think Jay might have some acid for you. Uh, I, I hope so. Actually, you get a full bottle of liquid LSD, 100 hits of Owsley liquid LSD. And you get your choice of any concert that you want to pay yourself to go to and buy tickets for. This summer, anywhere in the country, including airfare that you pay for. And um, what a show. I really enjoyed it. Well, it was a blast having you on, Jay. Thanks for doing it. A link to Jay and his daughter Ricky's 
new book, Retro Blakesburg, will be in the show notes again. Congrats to Jeremy on the back-to-back titles here. And Jeff, great run, man. Before we go, can I can I plug my YouTube channel once more? Of course, Jeremy. Far away. I got two cover, Grateful Dead covers on there now. I did Candyman. That one I talked about the last show. And now I have a Direwolf cover on there. So I, I want to do more as long as I'm on this show. Nice, Jeremy. And Jeremy's YouTube channel is Jeremy Guitar, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Okay. Subscribe to Guest the Year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For all the show links, including our YouTube channel, go to guestthear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at guesttheyear.net. New email address there. Thank you to Jay for not only coming on, but also supplying the prize pack this week, his book, Retro Blakesburg. Thanks to Mason, as always, for curating the prize packs, and to Dylan for drawing the posters. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to the amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible. Congrats to our back-to-back champ, Jeremy. And to our other contestants, thanks for playing, and remember... It's all one song anyway. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night.